Welcome everybody to the uh, second edition of the Fireside Chat, of the Youth Fireside Chat with Tom Campbell. Um, those of you who watched uh, the first edition might recognize Alexander. He is back, Alexander from Australia. And we have one new participant, which is Kyle. Kyle is from the United Kingdom. So um, with that said, uh, we'll jump right into the first question, which is one from Kyle. Okay, um, so Tom, I was wondering, um, do you know cryptids, things such as like um, Bigfoot and Rake and, and things like that, so like mythological creatures that have not been proven to exist or have been disproven, could you maybe explain how that fits into MBT and how they're manifested and why some people claim to um, see these types of things? Well, um, there could be several reasons why that might happen. First, we have to start with the, the uh, idea that this is a virtual reality, which means reality is generated from a data stream sent to each consciousness. Okay, that means that to get a Bigfoot in your, in your reality, all you need is to assinuate the data for a Bigfoot into your data stream, right? And that doesn't need to be in anybody else's data stream. It might just be personal for you. So if there were a situation where it would be to your advantage, let's say as far as your personal growth went, to see some of these kinds of unusual things that are unproven, then the larger conscious system could always put that data in your data stream to give you that experience if it thought this would be a good experience for you. So that's one way it can occur. And uh, you see that has a, a lot of different connotations than the fact that, oh, this thing really exists, you know, and it runs around, you know, up in the north uh, west uh, United States, at least Big Bigfoot, that would be his territory and, you know, so on. The Yeti is, is in Tibet and in the Himalayas. So rather than, than that being a real thing that's out there and lives, remember, it's a virtual reality. So it's just data in a data stream. Now, it could be that the rule set actually supports that thing existing. And if that's the case, then indeed it may exist not just for you, but it may be in uh, multiple persons' data streams because it satisfies the conditions of the rule set that it could indeed be here. Okay, now that tends to make it more of a physical thing. Physical being that it's available to everybody, uh, rule set who is, you know, who looks at it. So that's really what's going on. It's whether or not it um, can be supported by the rule set. Is it, uh, is it something that's there that uh, really does slink around and hide and only gets seen by a few people some of the time? Or is it, just an image that's put in selected people's data streams because they need that or because they could use that experience because it means something to them, helps get them out of their rut, uh, makes their reality a little bigger to see something very unusual. So it could be either, either one of those, and that would be true of, of um, other such sightings of things that seem to be very hard to verify which is really the, the definition of this class of things, which you call them cryptids, 
they're things that some people say they've seen, but they've never been proven actually to be available to anybody to see, uh, not to everybody to see. So, you know, they, those could be aliens could fit in there. You know, the little people from Venus or from Alpha Centauri, you know, with the pointy green ears. That's could be in that category as well. They get seen by some people, but they just seem to elude what would what would uh, amount to proof, you know, more scientific proof that they actually do exist. So they fall into that same category. It's possible that things that are odd could exist, but there's so many of us on this planet, and uh, it would seem odd that only one or two people once in a while would see such a thing. That's why they always seem to live in these remote places. That's very convenient. So I, it's, it could go either way. It might be a real virtual thing, if you like, something supported by the rule set, or it might just be for the individual consumption and there's no way to tell the difference between those so if you can't tell the difference then it really doesn't matter which one it is you don't get too invested in either one of those possibilities right all right um so do you think maybe um the larger consciousness system would do something like that on purpose to maybe give that person a nudge or maybe well yes that's just what we said yeah that that could be the possible that could be one of the possibilities. Yes. Thanks for clearing out that outcome. You're welcome. Okay, Alexander, you're next. Well, thank you. Now I will tell my question: Is there something else other than human that we can evolve into over many many lifetimes, or does the soul only use human avatars? Okay, is there something else you could evolve into? Uh, does this mean that you start out as human and then want to evolve into some other form other than human? Yeah, I guess. Or does it work the other way? You see, if you work the other way, then you might start out as a, you know, as a dog or a cat or a horse and, uh, and a monkey. And if you made really good choices and raised the quality of your consciousness, you might get a shot then of incarnating as a human. You see, it would kind of flow upward. Now, if you as a human just really, really wanted to be next to an old friend of yours, but you really didn't want to get involved in a whole, uh, a whole um, uh, life experience with it, maybe you could evolve as their pet. Maybe you could be their dog or their cat or something, and you could take on that role just to hang out with them, you see without really investing a whole lot of your, of your uh, bits in, in that particular incarnation. So yes, you can, you can uh, uh, incarnate in other kinds of forms. It's possible because you're consciousness and you can log on to whatever sort of avatar that suits you best at the time. And that avatar could be um, you know, any, any number of things. Eventually, when we have conscious computers, that will be another choice that you could log on and, uh, you know, be a, a conscious uh, computer. So all these opportunities are there. The, the reason that would make you choose one or the other is which of these would be most significant for your own growth, your own growth. So very rarely would you want an avatar that was 
kind of that you'd already passed that level, you know, like being somebody's pet cat, that really wouldn't want to happen or wouldn't happen very often because it just wouldn't be to your benefit unless there were very special uh, reason for you to do that. So, yes, you can. You're not limited. Uh, the biggest limitation is what's best for your for your growth. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Okay, Kyle, you're next. Okay, um, so, Tom, when someone dies, as in their physical body is no longer here, um, within the first week or so, would it be possible, um, since you find these psychics that after, you know, years after someone has died, they, you know, communicate with that person, um, but essentially it's just a copy, it's an exact copy of them, so if you manage to communicate with someone within the first week or so of them dying, as in their physical body no longer being here, would you be able to communicate with their real consciousness and not just a copy, or will it always be like a copy of their consciousness or a copy of them? Yeah. Well, in a way, uh, the question is, is kind of squeezing a, a definition of, of what is a copy and, you know, what's, what's real. You see, those two things are really kind of smeared together that it's hard to tell. The I know the, what you mean with the question, but we have to realize that that copy is really them. It's them without a free will. Okay? Now, the free will is, is something they have in order to have action, you know, to, to have make choices here when they're in this virtual reality. When they die, they also go to another virtual reality, and they also have free will. So it's possible that at that point you could communicate with them. It's not as likely because at that point they're very busy in the transition process. But yes, it's possible that it would be, you know, that. Oh, see, again, it's, you know, when that avatar dies, then that free will awareness unit that was, that was playing that avatar basically doesn't exist anymore. It goes away. It begins to reunite with its individuated unit of consciousness. So now within a few days, you're talking about, you know, how much of it is reunited? How much of that free will, free will awareness unit is still there? And how much of it is really now reunited with the individuated unit of consciousness? So it's, it's pretty nebulous to say, but I won't say that anything's impossible. It could be that, you know, that uh, reuniting with the individual unit of consciousness could be put off for a while because there was a communication that was really important to take place. And that free will awareness unit could maybe you know, hang around for a few days to do that. But in general, that's not how it works. In general, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're either talking you know, you're, you're, well, you're talking to a data stream, right? That's what defines reality. You're getting a data stream. That data stream represents that other person. It's whether or not that data stream has the same free will of the free will awareness unit that was once playing it. Most of the time, probably 99.99% of the time, it's going to be that you're talking, you know, with the historical figure, this historical avatar 
and all of the understanding and emotions and feelings and knowledge that that historical avatar had. So you're getting a, you're getting a copy out of the database. Um, free will awareness units hanging around to make a call home. It just probably, you know, it's just, even though it's not impossible, I'd say it's a pretty remote possibility. So, no, you know, it depends. Sometimes a person leaves here, they die, and they just have this, you know, they were right in the middle of something. There was something that was very critical for them to get across. And then they might just do that first before they go on. So it is possible, just not so likely. All right. Okay, well, thanks for clearing that up, uh, Tom. I think I understand that uh, a lot better now. So. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Okay, Alexander, you're next. Thank you. This is my next question. Is it possible to have any memory of your past life at all? Uh, yes, it is possible to have memories of it, and some people have very clear memories of it. Matter of fact, there was a, a, a young man, probably uh, even a little younger than you, but about your age, that uh, remembered in detail his experience flying an airplane in a war. Uh, he could tell you the kind of plane it was, um, you know, what it, what it looked like, the make, the models, uh, his name, you know, the name of the pilot, uh, where it was he got shot down, and a lot of detail, so much detail, in fact, that people could look it up, and sure enough, there was such a person, such a plane, and such a, an event did happen. And this was a, a young person. I don't know exactly his age, but he was more like five, six, seven, probably younger than you, who had all this information. And he was young enough that it's unlikely that he would have dug very, very deep in the history books to find out that particular fact so that he could pretend that he was, you know, that he was uh, this person and was just making it all up from facts that he'd gotten. That was very unlikely at his age and of the difficulty in digging this information out. It wasn't something that was well known or easy to find. So yes, sometimes that happens. And when that happens, that's an anomaly. That means it's something that, that, uh, is very unusual. And why would that happen? Well, it probably happened because it's a good lesson, not only for that individual, but for his parents who dug up the information and everybody else that's read the book and, and uh, you know, watched the video that this young man subsequently made to uh, demonstrate this knowledge that he had. So it's probably affected you know, hundreds of thousands of people and help open their minds to a bigger reality. And that's probably why it happened. In general, it doesn't happen that you just remember it. But you can uh, go to the database where such information is kept and look at that data and get that information. Now, that's a little different than remembering it. That's, you know, that's kind of downloading it rather than just remembering it. So you can do either of those. It's just not a usual thing. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Okay. Um, then next one is Kyle again. Okay. Um, so, Tom, I think you did use this example before about a tree falling in the woods. 
Um, mm -hmm. But if you replace the human with another animal, such as a squirrel or something like that, uh, my question to you is, um, say, for example, if a squirrel was looking at a tree and um, the tree was standing upright. Um, uh, it's a bit of a hard question. I don't, I'm not sure how to phrase it. Um, I'm sort of... Uh, yeah, I think I get. I think I understand what you mean. If there was a squirrel, would the squirrel notice the tree? Would the squirrel see the tree fall down on the ground? You know, is is that an important part, important uh, experience of the squirrel, even though there's no human there to notice it? And the answer to that is yes, because squirrels and trees <laughs> are very close. Squirrels pay attention to trees probably more than people pay attention to trees. And particularly if this was a tree, let's say that the squirrel had a nest in. Well, the squirrel has consciousness. The squirrel is a conscious being. So the squirrel is also getting a download. That's a virtual squirrel. And that virtual squirrel is a, is a, uh, a rather small and limited individuated unit of consciousness that is getting a data stream playing the avatar of the squirrel. And yes, because that part of his, that's part of his environment, it means something to him, it's significant to him, then that's going to be part of, of what he's aware of. And anything that that squirrel avatar could be aware of, then he has to get that in, in a data stream. So yes, then the tree falling in the woods would be recognized by the squirrel. Okay, now let's say that the man comes back in the woods later and the tree's laying on the ground, then the man's going to have to see the tree laying on the ground because the system doesn't want to run two realities of the same thing for different individuals. So if the squirrel sees that tree falling, then that's enough to make that tree have fallen for the human. When the human comes back, that human will also see that tree on the ground. So yes, the squirrel can collapse the wave function, if you like. The squirrel can uh, set the condition that that tree indeed has has fallen. It doesn't take a human to do that. But now that's because the squirrel is aware of trees. Maybe, uh, like I say, as a nest in a tree. So trees are very important to him. But let's take a you know a, something else that doesn't have that. Uh, something else that has that that tree is just not part of their reality, even though if they're in that area, maybe there's some kind of little bug in the dirt or something. And that little bug that lives in the dirt knows nothing of trees, could care less about trees. The tree is not part of his reality. Therefore, that bug doesn't get a data stream defining that tree and how and the state of that tree. So in that case, whether you know that tree falls, that bug never notices because it's not in his reality. Then that doesn't change anything. That doesn't make that falling tree a necessary thing when the man walks into the woods later, because there's no there's no conflict there because the bug wasn't aware of the tree, whether it was standing or falling, either one. You see, so it depends on consciousness. The squirrel's conscious, and because it's conscious, it can. You know, it, it gets data. And when that data defines something in its reality, when a human shares that reality, then the two have to be the same. You can't have two separate realities uh, playing at the same time for different players. It's just one, one reality. So that's how that works. So even though that little bug in the dirt may be conscious, 
as long as it's not conscious of the tree, it's not aware of the tree, then it's not a player in whether or not that tree is standing or falling. But a conscious thing that is aware of that tree and does get that in its data stream, then that that will determine whether or not that tree is you know still standing or falling or falling. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I understand that a lot better now because I wasn't sh too sure if you know it would if the squirrel would affect anything or not. But yeah. I understand a lot better now how that. Yeah, works. it's because the squirrel's conscious, you know, and every conscious thing, every conscious critter is just like us in a sense. It just has a more uh, reduced or a smaller uh, decision space. But as consciousness goes, it's doing the same thing we're doing. It has choices. By the way it makes those choices, it evolves the quality of its consciousness. Uh, and, you know, it's consciousness is consciousness. So whether it's small and, in the, you know, and it's, a, it's an IUOC playing a squirrel or whether it's an IUC playing a human, it uh, all works the same way and for the same reason. All right. All right. Thanks for clearing it up. I understand that way better than I did before now. Okay. Just go ahead with the next one, Carl. All right. Um, so, Tom, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of a, the whole of the Fibonacci sequence. Um, mm -hmm. So I was just wondering if maybe you could explain to us how the Fibonacci sequence fits into MBT. Well, sure. Fibonacci uh, uh, series fits into MBT in many ways, you know, from seashells to the plants to lots and lots of things um, have symmetry structures that uh, follow that particular uh, series. The reason that we find that is because this is a virtual reality, which means it is rule-based. And for the most part, that can reduce to it's math-based. It's a mathematics-based reality. And that's really one of the big uh, mysteries that virtual reality solves. Uh, scientists who, who un have understood now for 100 years or so that reality seems to be math-based. In other words, reality seems to speak math, if you will. That's the fundamental language that, that seems to uh, describe reality better than any other language. Well, that's because it's a virtual reality. That virtual reality is computed. Computed means math. So when the, um, as we say, the uh, larger conscious system, the uh, uh, rendering engine, if you will, that's creating the data streams, to send to uh, conscious critters, conscious uh, consciousness, plain avatars here that computes things that fits the rule set. The rule set is logic. It's mathematics. So that's why mathematical functions like that show up all over the place in, uh, in our reality because that's how the rule set computes them. Right, um, and, you know, even more than that, uh, Kyle, is that we find these things, not only does it show up, say, in the seashell, because it was real handy to create a thing that evolved, a sea creature that evolved that, that evolved that shell. It was a handy way to do that. But the same mathematics, the same function is good for 
vegetables and leaves and, uh, you know, the way uh, coastlines look. And there's lots of other phenomena that fit that same series. Well, if you're a, a programmer and you're making a virtual reality, you have a set of equations that work really well for simulating things that, that uh, can be supported by our rule set, then you use them over and over again. That's why it doesn't just show up once just in a seashell or just a particular seashell. You'll see that used up many times. And then people come to the conclusion that it's some sort of sacred geometry, that the geometry itself is sacred. Well, it's not so much that as the geometry is useful to the rendering engine. It's a very uh, you know, useful piece of mathematics as far as making things that could evolve under the, the rule set that evolves this particular virtual reality. So that's why those things show up. All right. Thanks very much, Tom. Okay. Just go ahead, Kyle. <laughs> uh, this is the Kyle show now. Okay. Yeah. Keep right going. Keep on going. Okay. Um, well, I was wondering if maybe you could um, tell us how exactly consciousness connects to our avatars um, in this virtual reality. Okay. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about that. Uh, you will read in various books that consciousness connects to the body like uh, the body's an antenna, like it's, uh, you know, sending a, a radio wave, you know, to the, to the avatar and the two, you know, the avatar and the conscious communicate with this, uh, you know, this like radio signal going back and forth. And it's not like that at all. So there's lots of metaphors that people use, like radio signals, that are just probably very poor metaphors. That's not uh, really the way it works. The way it works as a virtual reality is you, as an individuated unit of consciousness, you then take a piece of yourself, which is a free will awareness unit, and that free will awareness unit basically logs on to that avatar, it agrees that it will play that avatar from the very first experience that avatar has. So how is it done? Well, it's done the same way you log on to play your character, you know, in, uh, uh, you know, The Sims or what's the one that the kids play now? Um, uh, think of it, uh, Minecraft. When you log on to Minecraft and you uh, play your character, it's the same way. How do you play that character? How do you connect to the character so that that character does whatever you instruct it to do, follows your choices? Well, you log on. And when you log on, the computer now sends a data stream to you describing what that character does, and you send a data stream to the computer to tell that character what you want him to do next. So you just set up in the in the computer this back and forth communication between you and that avatar. That's what happens when you log on. That's what the server does. It takes your log on and then matches you with that avatar. And now data streams flow back and forth through the computer between you, the consciousness, and the avatar. And that's really the same way that you connect uh, to your avatar. It's just you're not really connecting to an avatar, you see you're only connecting to a server. Just like if you're playing um, your Minecraft and you've got, a, you, you've got a character that you're playing, you're not really connected to that character. You're really just connected to the server. 
You see, it's you and the server that are talking to each other. And as you give the character uh, commands, you, you make choices for it. Then the server shows that image on your screen as doing what you've asked it to do. You know, build higher, uh, you know, go, go mining for certain kinds of, uh, of resources. So it, it does what you want it to do. That's the way it works here. So you're really not connecting to the avatar. You're really just connecting to the server. The server then moves the avatar back. That avatar is just a bunch of ones and zeros on a, you know, on a, uh, you know, metaphorical hard drive someplace. So it doesn't really exist. So there is no real connection to the avatar. People only imagine that because they think of the physical body as being primary and then consciousness being some other reality and the two have to communicate with each other. But the physical body is just numbers in a computer. It doesn't really exist as a, as a thing. It's only virtual. It's a virtual thing. So you're, you connect to the server is what you connect to. All right. Thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome. Yeah, Carl, just go ahead with the next one then. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Tom, this one is more about your certain opinion on um, a quote, if that's okay. Um, sure. So, uh, John Hagelin, so we think about things all, all the time, you know, every day. Um, but John Hagelin described thoughts as a vector in linear space. Would you go along with that statement? Would you agree with it or disagree with it? Or... No, that tends, that tends to make it sound very physical. You know, thought is not dependent on space. If it were a vector in linear space, then, you know, now if it's metaphorical space, <laughs> maybe, but physical space is probably not a good metaphor. Now, all those things are just metaphors. I don't think Hagelin was saying that because he thought it was literally true. I think he's probably saying it because it seemed like a good metaphor to get his idea across. Um, I think it's probably not a good metaphor because it tends to make consciousness uh, physical if it's in space. Consciousness is not, is outside of space. Our space is virtual space. Our space, again, is just numbers in a computer. There is no space. There's uh, just consciousness and the, and the server and the individuated unit of consciousness is chatting with the server. That's really what's, what's going on. So other descriptions, other metaphors tend to be made up in order to make consciousness seem more physical. But now I also use the word vector when I'm making metaphors about consciousness. When I talk about a group consciousness, I'll say that if you have a bunch of people in a group, that the way that group behaves is a vector sum of all the consciousnesses involved in the group. Okay, But again, that's just a metaphor. I don't mean that literally, that it's a mathematical process, you know, using vector algebra to uh, compute it. That's not the case. It's just that it's all of the various components. That's why I use the word vector. It's all of the various components that make up each one of those individual consciousness that all get summed together to make up the group consciousness, like a mob consciousness. You know, a mob mind 
has its own way of doing things. And the mob is usually more violent and less uh, rational than any of the individuals inside the mob. But together, they produce a kind of a, a consciousness that is their group consciousness. So that's, you know, it's not really a vector sum of all the consciousness. Again, that's a metaphor. I use vector because it's all the components involved in it. So I think it's just not a very good metaphor because it makes it sound very physical. Right, okay. Um, thanks for that, Tom. Wow, that was a lot to take in, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, when we start talking math, it gets a little hard to uh, to talk about that, except at the level where it's where it's uh, where you learn it, and you probably haven't got the vector analysis yet in your career of uh, mathematics so it's a little difficult for you to understand exactly what it is i'm talking about there but there's no way around that since vector is the word that we're really talking about here right um another question i wanted to ask you if that's okay with you um i think it was, it was i think it was a while ago you mentioned about a game called no man's sky and mm -hmm. it has trillions and trillions of planets and if you played it right. every single day for the rest of your life you'd never explore all the planets but I was wondering, did you did you play No Man's Sky, or have you looked into it and bought the game maybe, or have you? No, I've never played it. Um, I've never even played World of Warcraft or The Sims. I've never played any of those games. All of those were long after my time of sitting down playing computer games. The older you get, the less time you have for sitting down playing computer games, and uh, particularly, I've been a, a very busy person, so I haven't done any of those. But I spent hours. Uh, passing by the uh, chair that my son and daughter were sitting in as they played both of those games and a whole lot of other ones. So I'd pause for 10, 15, 20 minutes and watch them play just to get a sense of it. So uh, I could make a decision as a parent whether I thought that was a good thing or a bad thing. So I did spend some time watching these games being played, and I know a little bit about how they're played and how they work. And No Man's Sky was interesting because of the procedural programming doesn't have to make a map that exists forever in the computer. They just calculate everything on the fly. So they only calculate what a person looks at. Well, what each player is looking at at that instant, that's what they calculate, nothing more. And that makes their computer science problem a whole lot simpler. So that's what's neat about that. But, you know, People are coming along now with ideas. I just got an email from a programmer who's been in the gaming business for 20 years or 30 years or something, and he's taking that another step further so that uh, it's going to be even uh, more efficient and more uh, probabilistically driven and less top-down approach. So we've just seen the beginning. The No Man's Sky is really important because it kind of was the kickoff. It was the first big thing you know, big thing, and that millions of people heard about it that uh, let go of the top-down approach and started looking at the realities they were creating in the virtual world as probabilistic re realities that were basically bottom-up. They're, they're all individual data streams to player, and you don't send them any, and you don't compute anything more than what that player needs or what all the players in, in, in the game need at that particular instant, that's the only thing you compute. Nothing is saved. So that was just a whole new approach to programming virtual realities, and it was more similar to the way our virtual reality is done. 
That's the way our virtual reality is, that we call the physical universe. We all get data streams, and we only get the information computed that we need at the time, and no more is calculated or kept or saved. So I thought it was really neat that we got something that was looking more like uh, the way our reality is done and something that is much more efficient than the old concepts of virtual reality. So now people can think of virtual reality instead of saying, what, this is a virtual reality? That's impossible. Look at all the memory. Look at all this and look at that. You know, that's because they weren't seeing ways to do it that were a hundred times more efficient than the virtual realities of their day were. But these new programs make people think, oh yeah, that works. You can have a quintillion, you know, quintillions of planets and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of users. And uh, you can do all that on a relative small computer. You don't need a giant uh, mainframe to, to process all of that. So it, it makes the concept of virtual reality more credible to a lot of people when these games come out. That's really what's so neat about No Man's Sky. But No Man's Sky is just a start. It's, uh, it's the Pong. You know, it's the space invaders of, of the gaming world. It's just a, a first, first shot at this. These, these ideas are going to get better and better and more and more efficient as time goes on. All right. Um, thanks for that, Tom. Um, I have another question, another one. Um, so do you think maybe in the future, um, within this virtual reality, we'll be coding um, and making virtual realities like the one we're in, but inside of this one? So. Okay, well, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, you're talking about, uh, you know, making... Uh a virtual reality in which a consciousness, a free will awareness unit would like to, you know, log into and play that character. You see, now we don't program a virtual reality with virtual characters and those characters then somehow become conscious. That's not the way it works. A lot of people think of it that way. But when we program, when a, when a computer becomes conscious, it doesn't mean that the individual avatars in that virtual reality that that computer is playing are conscious. That'll only happen if in that computer game, so we have a regular, you know, hard, and from our viewpoint, from this virtual reality, it's a piece of physical hardware. It's a computer. It's just a very fast computer. But if that computer can represent a, a virtual avatars, and those virtual avatars have the consistency, the uh, longevity, all the attributes of something that a consciousness would like to play, then consciousness can log on to play that, and it would then talk to its server. The server now would be what we'd call a physical computer, and the consciousness would have to log on to that server and play the character, you see. But it can only do that if that server, our physical computer, is conscious. So if you had a conscious computer, then a piece of consciousness could log on to that consciousness computer because it's conscious to consciousness information flow going back and forth. And then that computer could modify those characters in its virtual reality according to the choices made by a free will awareness unit that was basically playing that avatar. So you see, that's the way that, that what you're talking about could come about. But that's the only way. There's not 
there's nothing that a programmer going to do that you know suddenly a miracle occurs and the and the avatars in the simulation become conscious that's not the way it works first you have to have a computer that is being played by an avatar a conscious computer then that then could evolve one day into the situation where other avatar other uh free will awareness units could then log in to that conscious computer and play its characters that's the only way that could uh that could take place so that consciousness that is the conscious computer then becomes the server for this other game that other avatar so he'd have that uh, particular conscious computer would uh, have to have a pretty uh a pretty smart uh, free will awareness unit to let it then become a server for others. But that's possible. All right. All right. Um, I got this question off Kyle. And he, is it possible to, well, um, this is a question I don't really know how to explain properly, but can you code consciousness? Can you what? Carry? Can you can you code consciousness? Encourage. No, code, code. like programming. Can yeah, you code, code consciousness? Yes. That was a question to me or a question to Kyle? That's a question to you, Mr. Campbell. Okay. I thought you started out saying this was a question for Kyle, so I got a little confused there. Okay. Can you program consciousness? No. You cannot program consciousness. You see, it doesn't work that way. Consciousness, you can program a computer such that consciousness can make choices. You can program a computer that has the ability to make free will choices. Can you give a computer uh, software and hardware such that the software can end up making free will choices? Yes, that's possible. And when you do that, then a consciousness can use that computer. See, that computer is a virtual computer, just like your body's a virtual body. So a, a free will awareness unit can log on and basically uh, operate that piece of hardware, that computer. But the computer has to give it enough free will choices that it's interesting enough for the for the consciousness to log on to it. So you don't program consciousness. What you do is you can program an environment that consciousness would like to play in. If you do that, then a consciousness will certainly log on and play. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Okay. <laughs> Well, as far as I'm concerned, we are through with the questions. We actually have the problem that uh, three participants which wanted to join us didn't show up. So um, maybe let me come up with one more question here um, for a second. Um, Tom, I think I remember you telling that uh, you had this connection to the larger consciousness system as a young child. You had out-of-body experiences mm -hmm. and you had them later on when you started meditation while you were in college. But there was this phase in between and I think I even recall telling you, uh, having you tell that you were like an atheist for a while in that time, in that phase. Do I recall that correctly? Oh, yes. But 
it was about, uh, I was somewhere five, six, seven, where I was having a lot of out-of-bodies, where I uh, was visited by non-physical beings that then taught me how to do out-of-body on my own and who arranged what I would call, you know, metaphorically training programs for me to learn how to function in the larger conscious system in that out-of-body reality frame. Things that I could do, controlling my mind, you know, uh, uh, having strong, focused intents, that sort of thing. So I would put in school, if you will, to learn how to function in that larger reality system. Then when I got to be about seven, eight, somewhere in there, that door was shut. And I was told, you need to stop doing this because you need to grow up like other people, not be such a weird standout that, uh, you know, you don't get socialized properly and, you know, end up, uh, you know, warped and, uh, and uh, you know, psychologically damaged because you don't fit in anywhere and nobody can talk to you, et cetera, and you can't talk to others. So they wanted to limit the amount of weirdness that I understood and, and had. So they shut that door for a while. And when I was old enough to think big thoughts, which is for me then, you know, you, you kids are thinking big thoughts way ahead that I started thinking big thoughts. But uh, I probably started thinking big thoughts about the nature of reality and how it all put together when I was maybe, uh, you know, 12, 13, something like that, 14. And at that point, I started thinking about uh, religion and whether or not it made sense to me and whether or not it uh, seemed like, uh, you know, a god was a was an actual thing and not just an invention of humans. And I came to the conclusion that indeed it was an invention of humans. You know, God was uh, created in the image of man and he represented man's ego and man's, uh, you know, fears and that there really was no God that made me an atheist. I probably maintained that attitude through high school, through college and probably right up to the time that uh, I was working uh, with Bob Monroe. So it was, you know, I was still having uh, out-of-bodies and things, but I just assumed all of that was just the nature of consciousness. See, I didn't uh, prescribe any religious significance to any of it. It was just the way consciousness worked. I then began to see that though it didn't have a religious significance to me, it did have a spiritual significance, if you want to use that term. And for a long time, I didn't use that term because it just sounded too religious. But indeed, spiritual is a good, you know, was a a good word that just means a component of you that's other than just this physical reality component. I realized there was other parts of me, which I called consciousness, that existed in larger reality frames than just the physical. So, okay, the word spiritual kind of fits that. So then I took spiritual out of the words not to use because they sound religious and I'm an atheist into the, into the, the box of words that I could use because they kind of accurately describe what's going on. So then I became uh, aware that there is a spiritual dimension to people. And of course, religion claims to know about that spiritual dimension. And then a funny thing happened. I started realizing that many of the things that religion say that are not part of their dogma, not part of their creed, not part of their their rituals, but just the basic attitudes that many religions had 
fit very well into the way I was understanding reality and consciousness to be. You know, we have lines out of Christianity like God is love. And we have the lines from the Buddha, you know, 2,500 years ago, that this is all an illusion and so on. You know, these things, the more I understood the larger conscious system, the more I could see that in all of the major religions in the world, they had a lot of it right. They had a lot of the, the attitudes and ideas and philosophy correct. Their metaphors sometimes were very dated. The metaphors weren't, uh, you know, weren't modern enough that uh, they didn't feel too natural to me. But the concept, the ideas behind those metaphors were right on target. So that was a kind of a big aha moment for me that I saw that uh, religion did have a bona fide spiritual concept, if you, if you will. And it wasn't just a bunch of dogma and rituals and things that people memorized. And there was some real significance to it that was fundamental to the nature of reality. Of course, I also still understand that, um, you know, there's also a lot of nonsense connected to it that has to do with the dogma and the rituals and so on that uh, are just, uh, you know, metaphors. I just see those as metaphors that uh, you shouldn't take a metaphor too seriously. You have to realize it's just a tool. It's not a sacred thing. It's just a tool that we use because it works. So anyway, yeah, I kind of went through this whole thing of uh, first being an atheist. Uh, first, uh, yeah, I guess my first point that I really decided where I stood with religion, I was an atheist. And then... I kind of broadened that atheism and that uh, agnosticism into a spirituality that really embraced a lot of all of the religions uh, as having parts of the truth. But none of them had all of the truth. They all had nonsense that went along with them, but they did have a lot of the fundamental truths right, which is why, you know, I have people come up to me and say, well, Tom, have you been studying Tibetan Buddhism? And I say, no, not really. I know it exists. And I say, well, I have. I'm a Buddhist monk, and I've been studying this for 30 years. And your big toe sounds exactly like, you know, Tibetan Buddhism. And I hear that from all sorts of different religions. I hear that from probably 10 or 15 different uh, philosophical sets. They tell me the same thing. Well, that's because there's just one truth. And there's lots of ways to approach that truth and lots of metaphors to describe that truth. And religion have a fair amount of that truth correct. Um, so that's kind of my journey of, uh, you know, of uh, being non-religious and spiritual instead of religious. And then seeing that the religions actually do have a lot of good material in them uh, as well. Wow. Um, again, a lot to take in, but I think I, I think I understood a lot of what you said. Um, so I have another question. Um, so in the world, you're talking about Buddhism, and in the world of Buddhism, um, people, you know, Buddhists would explain the term as enlightenment. But what would be the term to use in MBT um, as enlightenment? Well. One of the problems with enlightenment, as many people use it, and even many Buddhists use it, not all, but many Buddhists do, is it's used as a, as like a, a description of a, 
of a destination. It's an endpoint. Well, we study, we learn, you know, we work, we try to grow up, and then we become enlightened and we're done because that's our goal is to become enlightened. And once you're enlightened, you're, you're through with this uh, evolution of your consciousness. And I have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with a metaphor of enlightenment as meaning getting better, growing up, becoming more enlightened, you know, day by day, year by year. We all become more enlightened with time as we grow up and get rid of our fear. We become more enlightened. But I don't like the term as an endpoint. We will become enlightened, and that means we have zero entropy and, you know, we have zero fear. And there's really nothing else for us to, to do anymore. We're, we've arrived. So some of the Buddhists say that then you become one again. You melt back into the Godhead. In other words, you become one with the larger consciousness system, and you just uh, rejoin uh, that larger system. And others maybe have other ideas of what's going on there. But this, this end game, I reject. I don't think there's an end game. I believe there is no time when you're done. And I think that as soon as you start feeling done, that's when you begin to de-evolve into more fear, more ego, and more beliefs. So I think it's one of those things that you can approach zero entropy, but you can never get there. And if you ever believe that you are there, then you'll probably start sliding back and your entropy will start increasing. Um, that's the nature of reducing entropy. You have to constantly put energy into it. Otherwise, it starts to dissipate. It starts to unravel. Entropy just naturally grows if you don't put any energy in to um, keep that entropy reduced. All right. Um, thanks very much, Tom. Um, so why is it um, that um, nowadays people aren't very aware of the fact that this is a VR, but it's almost like the further back you go in time, the more people were aware that reality was an illusion. They didn't obviously use the term virtual reality back then. Um, but why is it the further you go back in time, the more people are aware that this reality was an illusion? Now, I wouldn't agree that more people were aware. Um, some people were aware. There's probably more people now who are aware that it's a virtual reality, but that's because we have so many more people now. You know, we have seven, um, seven and a half billion people. So even if only 1% of them are aware, even if a hundredth of 1% of them are aware, that's still more people than probably even existed back at uh, 2500 BC when, when Buddha was telling everybody that this was, uh, you know, our reality was an illusion. So we, but you did have people from the beginning. You know, you have, if you look at the, at the, not only the, the Buddhism, but out of, you know, Buddhism was a branch out of Hinduism. And back hundreds and hundreds, if not millennia before the, the Buddha, there also was awareness of a bigger picture and that the reality that we have being insubstantial, you know, it wasn't the real thing. So that's gone back for many thousands of years because people have always you know, you know, people are all, have always been conscious, right? They've always been played by individuated units of conscious. And if you are an individuated unit of conscious, you have access to the databases, 
you have access to bigger pictures. Uh, basically, if you just pay attention in school, you'll learn things like fear is a problem, you know, getting rid of fear, uh, ego, beliefs are problems, and you start dropping it. You don't have to live in modern times for that to be an obvious thing to do. So people were growing up and getting rid of their fear and their egos and, and their beliefs many, many thousands of years ago, and some of them were successful. And when they were successful, well, they, I guess they looked like geniuses to everybody else. Uh, they seemed to understand the nature of the world. They seemed to be able to answer questions and explain how things worked. So people started to follow them, and they became big wheels, and history recorded what they said. And now we have that recording, and it looks like, wow, people back then were really pretty smart. Well, there's also lots of people here today on this planet now who have, you know, bigger pictures. Lots of us have bigger pictures here, but we're still just a very tiny, tiny percent of the whole. Now, I don't know whether that percentage has grown or, or, you know, gotten bigger or gotten less. That would be hard to tell. Could be that when there were just uh, three or 400 people that understood it back in a time when there were only tens of thousands of humans walking the planet, that they would have had a higher fraction uh, than we have today because we have so many people. I don't know that. That's some research that would have to be done. But in any case, these truths have been available to consciousness, people who are paying attention to what works and what doesn't, what, you know, what feels good and what feels bad, what causes trouble and what causes joy. And people figured it out. When they did, they shared it. And then you ended up with movements, and they continued to share it. But as those movements shared things, in the sharing, there is, you know, things get diluted. Or things get changed, just like that game where you somebody uh, you have 20 people in a row and you tell one of them one thing and they pass it all the way down the row through all 20 people and it comes out garbled on the other end. Well, that's the way it is when you have movements. You have an individual who figures a lot of things out and the first few people that he works with, they probably figure a lot of it out too and so on. But eventually after that's passed through hundreds and hundreds of people, it doesn't really resemble the original too much anymore. That's where all the dogma and ritual uh, comes in, you know, comes into the picture. People get a little further and further away from it as time goes out. So anyway, that's that's the uh, you know that, that's kind of the 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 reason why it seems that well people understood this you know three thousand years ago, four thousand years ago, and right now hardly anybody understands it. Well, not that many people understood it then either, but some did, and it got recorded. And people all through the ages, every every century of all time and centuries into the future, there will be people here that understand it perfectly well. And these people will often make big impacts in their societies. You know, the really, the really people who've really had big impacts on the world are generally people who understood this, who had big ideas, who had understanding of the nature of reality in a, in a big picture sense. They're the ones that, uh, you know, move mountains, if you will. So, yeah, it's always been around and it always will be around as long as you have people with consciousness that can, you know, reduce their entropy enough. Hopefully, we're going to change that that uh, calculus soon. We're going to have lots and lots of people who understand it because now we've got the internet. 
which is why you guys are here. You know, I can talk to, to the two of you, and that wouldn't have been possible 50 years ago. There's no way we could have this. So the ideas now are going to spread a lot faster, go a lot farther, and, and uh, you know, a lot more people are going to know about it because we have this communication technology that allows us to do that. So things are different now. And I'm hoping that within another few decades, we will see that ratio of people who get the big picture to people who don't really change very significantly here in this uh, virtual reality of ours. We've got the tools now to, to make that happen. All right. Um, thank you very much, Tom. That, that, was, a, that was a big eye-opener for me. That, was, that explained quite a lot about my question. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, Tom, and what you just said obviously triggered a new question from Alexander. So, Alexander, go ahead. Well, I'd like to ask the question, how is consciousness well made, I guess? How's it made? Now, there's a very basic question. Well, you have it first, the very original consciousness had to evolve. And it had to evolve from something. So I start my theory just with saying that consciousness exists because I don't know exactly how it must have evolved. That's because as consciousness, I can't get outside of the consciousness system to look back at it to see its history, like where it came from. Because we're all part of consciousness, we're insiders to the system, we can't look outside of it. Therefore, it's really impossible for us to know exactly how that initial evolution took place, although we can guess at it. And I have some good guesses about how that could have worked, but I don't really know. So I start with an assumption that consciousness exists. But now that's a not a conscious like ours. That's just a very basic, rudimentary, um, the kind of the lowest unit of consciousness that, that could possibly exist. From there, it just evolves. And it evolved in time to be this huge system that I call the larger consciousness system that has virtual realities and subsets of itself, individuated units of consciousness that play characters in these virtual realities. Now we have that. And, okay, how does this consciousness, how does this larger conscious system make a new player? Okay, we have a, a population of the world keeps growing. Well, it keeps growing. That means there's a whole lot more avatars. Well, do, now does the conscious system play all those extra avatars or does it make more individuated units of consciousness so that they can play them? Well, it's a good bet that it doesn't play all the parts itself. There's not much benefit to it in doing that. So it would make a new individuated unit of consciousness to be a player because there's more seats in the game now because the rule set has those humans just multiple applying like crazy and now there's seven and a half billion of us that's a lot of seats in this virtual reality so how does it do that well it probably takes just an average individuated unit of consciousness just kind of the average of all those individuated units of consciousness playing in this game it takes just an average one and does a copy and a paste now it's got a new one See, digital things can be that way. If you've got something in a digital computer, you can copy it and paste it. And now you have two of them. 
So it's just a copy-paste, copy-paste, and it can create as many individuated units of consciousness as it needs for the seats because it can duplicate averages. Now, as soon as that duplicated average starts to experience things, well, it starts making choices in its own experience because now it's playing the virtual reality and making choices. Then it starts to evolve or de-evolve on its own. And before long, it's completely unique. There's no other consciousness just like it because no other consciousness have ever had that exact same set of experiences in that exact same way. So very quickly, each consciousness becomes a unique player that is evolving from wherever it started, wherever it's taken itself with its experience. So that's how it's, that's how it's done. So at the higher level, after you already have the system, it's just pasting. It just can create new ones whenever it wants to. Uh, at the very beginning, where did it initially come from? That's a much harder question. And the answer is not only, you know, can't we, or don't we know that for sure? I mean, know it in a, in a scientific way, but we can't know it in that kind of a way. We can only know it in a form of conjecture, not in a form of fact. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Um, so Tom, I have a, a yet another question for you. Um, so is it in your opinion um, that this might be a VR or that this is a VR? Well, that's a good question. You know, how much do I believe the story that I'm telling? And I would say that I don't believe any story that I tell or that anybody else has told. You know, belief is not a good place to come from. But what I do is that I look at all of my experience and all the facts I know, all the science that I understand, and I say, how can we explain all of these facts, all of my experience and all of the facts I know, all the things that, that science knows, at least the things that science knows that I also know, and I look at all that and I say, what system can explain all that? And I come up with a virtual reality. That's how I got there, is is having a whole bunch of data points and seeing what sort of understanding would explain all of the data points, every one of them. So there was no data point it didn't explain. And it was consistent with everything we know. And then when I made these new experiments, it also predicts things that have that we don't know yet, experiments that need yet to be done. So that is how I got to virtual reality. So no, I don't believe it but it seems to be the best, most logical model that explains the facts of life. And those facts are, are subjective facts as well as objective facts. So it's all of those facts, the facts that I substantiated from my experiments in, in larger consciousness system. I'm talking about those facts too. Those are subjective facts. Those are not objective facts because they came from my own experience not general experience so i take all those facts together and to me that seems like it's probably in the you know 99.9 .9 range because i've been looking and looking for things that that lie outside of that model's ability to you know to explain and I haven't found anything yet everything seems to be explainable so that 
makes it sound to me like it's more likely to be true. But I won't say it. Yes, that's absolutely true. It's the way it is. And there's no question. That would be a belief. And as soon as you come up with beliefs, you start to become blind to data that might be contrary to those beliefs. That's why you have to always be open-minded and you have to always be skeptical. So I'm skeptical of my own theory because that's the way good science is. Good science has to always be uh, skeptical of itself, particularly of itself. Good science uh, can't come to the, you know, the scientists used to think that back in the 17 and 1800s, science produced things called laws, as in Newton's laws you know, Hooke's Law, and there was lots of laws that science produced because they had this idea that that was it. There would never be anything that would contradict any of it. You know, that was a a fact for all time and forever. And, of course, what happened later was that quantum mechanics and relativity proved that that wasn't the case, that they were just seeing a subset of a bigger picture. There was a bigger picture view that that, uh, was more correct, more accurate, and their subset was only good, you know, up to certain limits. So that's the way, that was when scientists decided to stop calling things laws because they realized that, you know, there's a lot of time yet that has to happen before this universe explodes. And there probably will be discoveries that will show that things aren't exactly the way we thought they were. So let's not call them laws and embarrass ourselves. Let's just say we're open-minded and skeptical and it's this is the best model available. I think that is true. Um, I haven't seen any models that are even close to its ability to describe and explain and predict. But uh, is that makes this model perfect? No way. You still have to keep your mind open and still be skeptical of this model. Right. Okay. I I think I understand that now. Thank you much. Um, so, why do you think that scientists um, deny the double slit experiment's behavior? Um, why do you think that some scientists do that? Well, they don't really deny its behavior so much as they they refuse to acknowledge what that behavior uh, uh, indicates. You know, they, they don't look at what that's telling them. They know the double slit works exactly the way it works. They've done the experiments. They've seen the results. They know that's truth because that's an experiment. And in science, that's how you find truth. You do an experiment. And if a lot of people do the same experiment and get the same results, then you call that a fact of science. And what happens in science over the last hundred years, a lot of people did get did do this experiment of the double slit experiment. They did get the same results. And they didn't have any idea how those results happened because those results seem impossible. So they didn't deny the results. They just said, nobody will ever know. These are just impossible things to understand. And they gave up trying to understand it because it contradicted their basic belief about reality. They had, scientists have this belief that reality is materialistic and deterministic. Those two are necessary for each other. If it's materialistic, it has to be deterministic. And if it's deterministic, the only way you can get that is if it's materialistic. So that was their belief about the way reality was. And this experiment said, it's not like that. 
it's probabilistic. Okay? And materialism, determinism, could not come up with the right answer, could not explain the results. So they started uh, the science of quantum mechanics. They called it weird science, and it comes up with results that are strange, and they just kind of lived with that strangeness. You see, a better thing for scientists to do, if the scientists were open-minded and not blinded by their belief in determinism and materialism, they would have seen those experiments and said, wow, these experiments are telling us that our determinism and materialism isn't right because they contradict that belief. We need a bigger picture. We need to see things from a higher level. Well, Einstein thought that. He tried. He came up with, or he tried to come up with a thing called unified field theory that was going to explain it all with one, on, you know, one big overarching understanding. But he failed because he wanted that overarching understanding to be physical. And there is no physical overarching understanding. You only get that overarching understanding when you see reality as probabilistic, calculated, and thus virtual. So again, Einstein knew there was a problem, but he wouldn't give up the basic idea that reality is physical, and that made it impossible for him to see beyond what he had. And to his, to his uh, credit and to his... Uh, and to give him a really good excuse for not seeing that it had to be computational, probabilistic, and virtual. The concept of virtual reality didn't exist in Einstein's time. Nobody, you know, computing um, the way we have it now, you know, that would support a virtual reality like this was not seen as a possibility in those days. Yes, we had computing, but it was not something that could, uh, you know, support a virtual reality such as ours. So it just was an impossible thing to even think about in Einstein's day. But that's not true anymore. And now scientists are just dragging their feet because it violates their beliefs. And beliefs are a very strong thing. And believing something is not rational. Belief is irrational by its very nature. Belief is an irrational thing. Facts are rational. Beliefs and opinions are not rational. You see, so if they were rash, if they were more rational, they'd be looking for bigger pictures that explained it. Now, virtual reality is a concept. Matter of fact, it's not only a concept, but a lot of scientists now say that our reality is computational. It's information, which leads to virtual reality and computed. But because they know that that will break their belief, they just don't go there. They want to look the other way. And it's just going to take a while for science to get over that. And primarily they'll get over it because the old scientists will retire and new people who've been playing new, uh, um, what is it? Uh, something man, what is it? Man sky. Uh, what was that? Uh, the simulation, yeah, no, no man's sky. sky, no man's sky. It's going to be physicists that have been playing no man's sky since they were eight years old that will now not find it's so difficult to let go of that belief of material reality. For them, it will be an easy, you know, an easy thing to bridge. So as time changes and people changes and, and people, people change and they have a bigger picture of, of reality, It'll change. 
It's just right now we're at that cusp of the change, and the old guard is hanging on as hard as it can to its old beliefs, and the uh, new guard isn't yet strong enough to have its way. So times are changing. Could be a different ball game in a couple of decades. Right, right. Well, um, thanks again, Tom. Um, I think a lot of the things you say are um, well, very true. I think, if I'm honest, I think you're a very wise man. I think you know, you know what to say, and I think, obviously, you don't know the answers to everything, but I think you, you do have knowledge of certain subjects and things, and yeah. Well, I, I caution you not to believe that, <laughs> just to keep it as a as a model, a way of looking at the world, and always have a, always have it in the back of your mind that uh, you know there may be something better, something more complete. Something uh, that's that is a you know is a better model come along, and in fact, my models changed a lot. You know, every every few uh, you know, I don't know, it's slowing down some, but in the beginning, it changed you know monthly, then uh, then yearly, you know, and now every so often, I come up with a whole new idea that I include in the model that wasn't there before. So the model is changing, and it needs to change. It's not a good model if it isn't. You know, if you can't change it, if it's a fixed model that can't be changed, now it becomes a belief and uh, it, it can't grow as new information comes in. You know, when I wrote my books, I uh, didn't understand how good my model was at uh, rewriting quantum mechanics and relativity from, you know, from the, you know, the basics of those, the foundation, reestablishing the foundation, the foundation of those sciences. And hopefully, with the experiments that I have pending, it's going to change quantum mechanics dramatically. The whole science of quantum mechanics will maybe change to a, a different viewpoint. Instead of weird science, it'll just be normal, um, you know, objective science. Nothing weird happening at all once you understand virtual reality. So I think there's a lot of changes going to come. And as other people get on board and start thinking about it, they're going to think a lot of things that I never thought about. You know, I haven't thought of all the logical implications. There are going to be millions of these logical implications of my theory that, you know, I don't have the background to even explore those things in all sorts of fields, in mathematics, you know, and physics. But besides that, in psychology and sociology, lots of places where uh, there are going to be logical implications of this theory, a lot of them in philosophy, a lot of them in theology, and other people will, will mine those veins as they should, you know. So my theory will grow and change and morph as information becomes available. And if it turns out that the model turns out to not be useful anymore, then throw it away and get, you know, find a better model. So you always have to keep your mind open. Right. Well, thank you very much, Tom, again. Um... Alexander, do you have any questions that you'd like to ask Tom? Because I have quite a few that I'd like to ask more. Uh, well, I mean, I wish I could dream up a question right now <laughs> that is suitable to ask Tom. So um, it just isn't a question that we all know the answer to. But um, if I knew a question, I'd say it, but I don't, so. Yeah. I, um, that's fine. Um, so, Tom... What um have you ever heard of the fourth dimensional maximacy supersymmetrical Yang Mills theory? 
<laughs> I've probably heard of it, but I didn't think I paid it a lot of attention. But go ahead. You can explain it to me, and I'll, uh, I can work with it. So it's the um, theory that of basically perceiving a 3D environment um, to, um, to an outside observer, which will be 2D. So for us, this VR is 3D, but to an observer, say, for example, observing it on a TV screen, that would be 2D for them. That's what mm -hmm. the, um, Yang Mills theory is. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Or... Well, yeah, there's some, there's some real interesting mathematics that take the equations, take the equation of a four-dimensional toroid. Now, a toroid is a, is a geometric shape like a donut. It's a, well, I guess that's the best way to say it. It's like a donut with a hole in the middle. So you, you take the mathematics that describe the donut shape called toroids, and mathematically, you can write equations in multiple dimensions. Mathematically, you're not just stuck to two or, th or three. You can write equations in four and five and other dimensions. Well, if you take a four-dimensional toroid and you just look at the surface of it, you end up with a three-dimensional uh, reality that looks very much like ours. So people say that our reality is really just the surface of a four-dimensional toroid. And we live on the surface of that four-dimensional toroid. Well, that's, a, you know, that's an interesting um, thing that to, uh, to come about. And if you, if you use that math, then the equations that, that represent our reality fall right out of that mathematical logic. So I think that's a very interesting thing. Matter of fact, uh, Brian Whitworth uses that idea as he derives his virtual reality uh, work. He's a scientist in uh, New Zealand that is also works in uh, trying to understand our realities of virtual reality. So yes, some of those sorts of things. Of course, as you go in dimensionality, you can say that uh, you know we actually only live in two dimensions because but our two dimensions are, are wound into three. You know, if you took the surface of the earth, then it's a two-dimensional surface. Well, you know, hills, mountains, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about a sphere. The, the, the surface of a sphere of a, of a next dimensional higher is, of course, the dimensional lower than the volume. So, well, I don't know that's exactly what you had in mind, but just I'm aware of those, and I think they're nifty. I think they're significant, and I believe they kind of help us understand the logic that might uh, explain how this virtual reality is computed. Okay, So the mathematics that computes this might indeed start with a four-dimensional toroid, which mathematics can do very well, and then look at its surface. And maybe that's the model that the rule set has worked with. That's possibility, you know, possibility. So that's why I think they're they're interesting models, but they don't really tell us much that's too important, other than possibilities of, um, you know, how the rule set might have been derived. All right. Um. Thank you very much for that poem. Again, um, that was. Um, quite a lot to take in, but I think I did understand most of what you said. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
you know, when you ask me questions that have to do with mathematics, it's really hard for me to give you answers that are probably at the level of mathematics that you're familiar with. But you can still get the sense of it. You know, even if you don't follow the details, I think you get the sense of what it is I'm saying and how that, uh, you know, how that relates. So I believe it's a, these are all good questions uh, that you're asking. I think you've all had, you've both had really good questions. And Oliver, too, has had really good questions. All right. Thank you very much, Tom. Well, Alexander actually has one more he just mentioned, so go ahead. Well, um, I don't know if this will be my last question or not. We'll see. But um, I'd like to ask the question, is it better to be open-minded or is it better to be skeptic? <laughs> if you're just open-minded and not skeptical, then you'll likely wander down la-la land and not uh, stay very coherent, not stay very uh, centered. And if you're skeptical but not open-minded, you'll end up you'll end up um, thinking that you that you uh, know everything. You're very skeptical, and you become your only one source of information. All other information, you just you know, is, if it doesn't uh, meet with your experience, then it must must be wrong. Well, that kind of skepticism obviously is very limiting. It turns into a belief. So. Open-mindedness without skepticism turns into silliness, and skepticism without open-mindedness turns into a belief. Neither one will work. You need both, and they, you need those both to balance. Yes, so everything needs to be looked at from both, and one is not more important than the other. They're both important. Neither one works by themselves, and only together can you actually make progress to move toward the truth. Thank you, Tom Campbell. That was awesome. <laughs> okay, um, Tom, so I have another question. Um, do you think that, obviously, we've gone very sort of small. We've gone to, like, particles and things like that. We've observed particles. Scientists have observed particles in their labs and things like that. But do you think one day we'll get so small that maybe one day we'll be able to catch a glimpse at, like, a pixel of this reality? Or do you think that's not possible? Well, that's certainly it's possible. It's not likely anytime soon. Even the very smallest things that we look at uh, are many, many, many times bigger than the likely size of a pixel. And here I'm just uh, uh, calling a pixel a, uh, a Planck length and a Planck time as being our, our space and time you know, pixels. You know, we have a, our space has, a, of course, is a pixel of volume, not a pixel just of length. But you take a volume and take a cube root of it, and now you have a dimension that is length. So, yes, uh, it's very, very small. Our measurements aren't really close to that just yet. So I think it's not going to be in the near future, but I don't see any reason why we couldn't one day dig down to a pixel. And when we do, it will be perfectly clear that this is a virtual reality because pixels aren't continuous. We'll see that information jumps from, from uh, point to point and is not a continuous, uh, uh, you know, from one point to the next. And we'll see the same with time. We'll see that time comes in little discrete chunks. So if we get to that point, then that will confirm this being a virtual reality. But I don't think our science is really able 
to get close to that yet, but I don't see why they couldn't get down to that level. Now, they can't go beyond that level because they, too, are made out of the same pixels. Their resolution, you know, is, is the same. The character, the virtual uh, avatar that they're playing, you know, is not going to get less than that because they can't, you know, they're made of pixels of the same size. So it's not like we can, sh- you know, we can shrink down and then fly around a pixel to look at it on all sides. That's not going to be the way it is. We can maybe get to the point that we can see pixelation in things that we measure. And uh, that will be a very difficult thing to do, but I suspect it's possible. All right. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, so I have another question. Um, if light slowed, so the speed of light, if that was to slow down, so if light, if light itself was to actually slow down, um, would that affect the delta T or would the delta T just stay the same? Well, the thing you have to understand here is that the speed of light is the ratio of the delta X over delta T. Okay, so you take the delta X and divide it by the delta T, and that gives you a velocity. And that's the speed limit of our virtual reality. Every virtual reality has a speed limit. No matter what kind of virtual reality is, the world of Warcraft has a speed limit. It only has so much resolution. You know, Sims has a speed limit, and that speed limit is the smallest unit of distance divided by the smallest unit of time. So that if you, if, you know, pixel by pixel, now this is based on an assumption that things move from pixel to pixel to pixel. They don't teleport from this pixel to some other pixel someplace else. They have to go from contiguous pixels. You know, pixels all in a row, if you will. Things have to move from pixel to pixel. Well, if they do, then the fastest that anything can go is at every delta T, it moves one pixel. The next delta T, it moves another pixel. That's that's the speed limit. And that happens to be our speed limit C. So now, if, if you went, you could go into that equation, since C is the result of the delta X divided by the delta T, you could go into that equation... And you could make um, delta X smaller, okay? And if you did that, then the speed of light, so you would have a smaller thing divided by the same thing, and it would be smaller. Or you can make delta X bigger. So you could vary that, but that's the resolution at which you're computing distance. That's the delta X. And that's based on delta T, which is really the thing that drives the experiment, which is the resolution in time. All all simulations, and a virtual reality is just a simulation, all simulations are dynamic. Well, all interesting simulations, like the kind we're talking about, are all dynamic. That means they're driven by time. So you have a bunch of equations, our rule set, that defines what's going on in the simulation. Then you increment delta T, just one unit one more delta T, then you recalculate everything to see how it changed. Then you increment delta T again and recalculate everything to see how it's changed. And that's how the simulation works. It works by incrementing delta T and then seeing how much it changes. So that's the basic variable that the computer has control of. Now, the computer also has something to say about 
how small is the delta X? So the delta T says, if that gets smaller, that means the computer has to compute more for the same amount of time going by. So that has to do with the computational requirements of the, of the computer. Now, if delta T or delta X gets smaller, that's basically the display resolution. How much data does it have to collect to, to a resolution of that much in the display? So those two things determine what the computer can do. You can make delta T bigger or smaller. And if you did that and didn't change the other one, then C would get bigger or smaller. You see? So it's not that if you just moved, you know, you could keep C the same if you change both delta X and delta T. So those ratios are the same. So let's say if we double delta X and double delta T, you'd have the same ratio and it'd still be C. But now we'd have a bigger delta X and a bigger delta T. And likewise, you could, which would be a lower resolution. You want higher resolution, you could have a tenth delta X for your distance resolution and a tenth of our delta T. So delta T is now, you know, one-tenth as big as it was. And now you have a much finer resolution in space and time, and C would be about the same. But I say about the same because you can't just, in a, in a, discrete system made up of pixels, you can't just double things or tenth things. Things have to come in some integer number of pixels, you see? So you can't change that ratio exactly. But you can get the numbers of pixels such that you can make that ratio as close to the old value as you can. If you made, if you change just one more pixel, you know, if you change it just a little bit more, you'd get a little bigger or a little less. So that's why, as our technology has gotten more and more precise, the system has needed to increase the resolution in time and space that it paints this picture, you know, for the display screen, if you will. Because we keep digging deeper and deeper and, and uh, looking at smaller and smaller things, so you'll actually see that the speed of light does change a little bit. Because when we've had to increase, when the systems had to increase the resolution by changing delta X and delta T, they've tried to keep that ratio constant, but they can't because they're working with pixels, with discrete things. They can't just make it to be exactly the same. So the speed of light's gone up and down a little bit here and there through the last hundred years as our technology has gotten more and more precise. And we've noticed that. But that's one another one of those things that scientists have noticed, but don't have any idea why that's why that's happening. So that's kind of the relationship between the delta T, the delta X, and the C. Um, that's how they, you know, are all connected to each other. And yes, the C has changed occasionally here and there, but not by much. You know, it just depends on how close the system can get to, uh, uh, you know, a pixel, and keep that ratio the same. Right, right. Well, thanks very much for your answer, Tom. Um, I have one last question for you and then I'm out, so maybe if Alexander wants to ask you anything. Um, but why are many people uh, sort of close-minded, if not for a better word, so if you was to tell them about MBT, they might, they'll hear you, obviously, but 
they'll usually disregard it as just rubbish and and things like that and they won't really be interested in it they'll just sort of think you're a bit of a you know nutter and just brush it off right right this is why you have so much trouble talking to your friends about these things because your friends just really aren't interested and don't want to hear it so what happens is that people people almost always feel that they know almost everything important that's because we don't know what we don't know it's impossible for you to be aware of what you don't know you see that's what's called a tautology that means it's it's a logical truth that uh, you know it's 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 true because it's true sort of thing so because you can't be aware of what you don't know then to you it looks like there's not very much that you don't know because you're hard, you're not aware of anything that you don't know so that leads you to believe that you know almost everything that's important well when you know almost everything that's important and somebody comes with you to something that you have no idea about that sounds really strange and and different and you don't know it then your first guess is that they must be wrong they must be confused because i don't know that and the people i know don't know that and i don't hear that in you know the movies i don't hear that in songs i don't hear that on the tv um you know i talked to my big brother you know who's a physics major and he doesn't know that so you must be wrong so that's why they come to those conclusions they just don't have a big picture not only do they not have a big picture because they're unaware of what they're unaware of but they also don't have much of an interest in forming a big picture because they don't realize that there's a purpose to our being here that we're here for a reason that this reason um, is important so they just think that they're just here because they're here they don't really think about it any deeper than that and they find it a waste of their time to talk about things that they don't understand so that's a problem you you are always going to have a problem talking to your friends and associates and other people you find around you and that won't change no matter how old you are you know when you when you're 40 years old and you're you know you work for a company and you've got a lot of other professionals who are well educated around you you think well then i'd be able to talk about it now it still doesn't work that way you still can't talk about it to the people at the office because they still don't want to know and they still are unaware of what they're unaware of so that goes for all ages it's not just because you're young and the other people who are young don't care but most people in our whole society no matter what their ages are don't really care very much either it's a matter of not understanding a bigger picture so you just have to realize that that's the way it's going to be you come on to these things and we can chat so you know i understand what you're saying and other people who watch these chats they'll understand the questions and the answers and so there's a group of us who get it and we'll talk to each other and keep growing ourselves and lowering our entropy and growing up and eventually there'll be more and more of us and more and more of us because we got internet we got communications and the scientists are will eventually get it as well and when they get it a billion more people will get it the next day because the scientists are the ones that tell everybody else how the world works they tell everybody what to believe 
Now, these, all these other people won't get it from a sense they really understand it, but they'll believe it because the scientists told them. So suddenly they'll think that it's not such a dumb thing to talk about anymore, even though they don't understand it any better than they used to. So hopefully over the next decades, by the time you, uh, you know, get as old as uh, Oliver there, hopefully before you get as old as I am, hopefully things will be such that there'll be lots of people willing to discuss this with you because uh, the big picture will have spread to uh, many people. But if not, that's all right. You just grow yourself, talk to the people you can talk to, and let other people be the way they are. And don't ever feel superior because you understand big pictures and they don't. That would be a mistake. Everybody here is pretty much doing the best they can with what they came in with, with the understanding that they got here part of the bean level of their IUOC. And they're struggling to figure things out as they go. Some people are further along that path and some are not so far, but everybody has to go at their own speed in their own way. You can't explain things to people. They have to figure it out for themselves. So don't feel superior, just feel different and be glad of that difference because that difference is going to eventually turn you into a happy, joyful person that finds a lot of meaning in your life. And that will be a joy to you. They'll still be struggling trying to figure out which end is up and why it is they're always so miserable. And very slowly, they'll figure that out. So yeah, uh, caution you against the arrogance of, I know and you don't. I know more than you do. I'm better than you because that's not true. You're just different than they are. You're just ahead of them in figuring out the big picture. And what you make of this big picture as you grow up, well, that'll change too. So it's just all, just think of your life as a, as a constant uh, learning process. And that'll never change. No matter where you are and how much you understand, you're always in a learning process. That's, that goes back to the, one of the first questions that had to do with enlightenment. You're never going to be done. There's always things to learn, always ways to grow up, always people to help. And you don't help them directly by telling them what they need to know. You just help them by giving them an environment and where they can change themselves. That's the thing. So putting out uh, things like we're doing tonight, the four of us are going to put out some videos that will give other people a chance to understand better some of the things that we understand. So that's the point. And some of them will listen to it and say, ah, what nonsense, and go away. And other ones will listen to it and say, wow, that made a lot of sense. I get that better now. So we'll be helping people. Your questions will be helping thousands of other people figure things out for themselves. So by putting these videos out there, we're just creating an environment that other people can come and, and uh, share that environment with the video. And some of them will learn something important. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's very true. Um, so um, I have one more question for you, Tom. Um, is the LCS conscious? And if so, um, is it just as conscious as we are? Or Yes. It's conscious. We are pieces of it. We're conscious. It's conscious. So it's conscious. It knows what it's doing. It's uh, created the virtual realities for a purpose. It knows what that is. It creates the computer that's the server for the virtual realities. 
Uh, it has a purpose. Everything that's created has to have a purpose or it wouldn't have been created. You know, it, it requires purpose for form to take, take shape. Form needs a purpose of some sort. Otherwise, it doesn't stay in its shape very long. If there's no purpose, it may take shape, but it disappears just as easily as it comes if there's no purpose or point to it. So, yes, it is, it is aware. It's intelligent. It understands things. And it has the biggest picture of all. So its picture is a lot bigger than our picture, and it understands a lot of things that we don't understand. But it's not that it's a super consciousness. It's just that it's it's the operating system, if you will. It's the uh, it's the system that runs the show. So it has a lot more uh, functions to perform than we do. We're just the players in the game. We don't have to worry about where the server comes from. That's somebody else's thing. We're just the player in the game. So, yes, it's conscious, it's aware, it's intelligent, and it knows what it's doing, and it does things for a purpose. It has free will. It makes its choices. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for your answers to my questions. I'm all out of questions, so, yeah. Thank you very much, though, for your answers. It's been a... You're, you're welcome. You've run us right up to the time where we were supposed to end anyway, so it's come... Very, very well. You know, we had a little bit of a late start, but we're, uh, we've done our two hours and the questions have been good. And I think they will be informative to a lot of people. We talked about a lot of things that other people have very similar questions. I'm sorry if I couldn't always voice my answers to a, to a, a level that was easy for you to understand. I know sometimes I was talking a little over your head, particularly with the math, but I didn't see any easy way out of that that problem, but I think even those cases, you still got the gist of it, and that's really all the people have to get. The details aren't that important. You get the gist of it, and you can go on and process from there. More information will come to you later in life, and it'll things will make more or less sense as you go, and that's as it should be. So I think it's been uh, a lot of fun. I'm glad uh, you guys uh, came tonight and had such good questions ready. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, you, I had such a great time um, just chatting with you and, you know, you answering my questions because uh, I've been following you for a while now and it's just so great to be able to talk to you. Like, even even if it's not in person, it's over a video chat, but it's just really, really great for me to be able to talk to you. So how did you get interested in it, Carl? Uh, did you, your parents, one of your parents, uh, get interested first and then they introduce it to you? Or were you the one that got interested in it first and you introduced it to them? How did that all come about that uh, you got into MBT? Well, um, my dad, um, he's been following you for about four or five years now. And I think it's, it was a couple of years ago he introduced me to the concept of MBT. Um, and he didn't obviously put anything down my throat. He didn't force anything onto me. He just said, Hey, this is the thing, you know, go look at, go look into it yourself. And these are the experiments that were performed. Look into it yourself. I'm not lying. And I eventually came to the conclusion that this is indeed a virtual reality. Um, so it wasn't anything like forceful. My dad didn't force it onto me or anything like that. He, he went, he made me go and, um, you know, look for myself. I, um, if anything, he wanted me to 
not blindly believe him and um, research into MBT myself, um, just so obviously I know he's not making things up or <laughs> anything like that. Well, that's good. You know, you asked a question earlier about uh, the fact that most people, if you open the subject up to them, they really don't want to hear it. They think it's a little crazy. And even if they would assume that it was correct, they're just not interested. But see, when your dad exposed you to it, you didn't act like that. You were interested. You did take the time to look it up and you did take the time to think about it. I think that says something very positive and something very good about you, Kyle. It, uh, it's impressive that people at your age are interested enough to pick it up and they don't say, yeah, yeah, dad, right, right, really great stuff. Uh, I got to go now. You know, that would have been more of the average response because it just wouldn't have been interested. So I, it's, it makes me feel good that people who are young take it seriously. They take the effort to think about it. Uh, it's not just, you know, something that's not important to them. That's unusual. You're an unusual uh, person to you and you and uh, Alexander both are very unusual just because you care enough to think about it and uh, be interested in it. That's a very unusual thing for people your age and uh, makes me feel really good that there are young people that are getting it because as the young people get it, you know, in another 20 or 30 years, you won't be the young people anymore. You'll be the people making the decisions and, uh, you know, running the show. So, that's really great. It makes me uh, very pleased that uh, people uh, who are young, I get people a lot in their early 20s who get interested in it, and that uh, makes me feel really good too. But this is a whole level beneath that. You know, you guys are uh, um, exceptional, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm honest, at the start, I was a bit you know, oh, my dad's kind of a bit, well, but then I thought to myself, you know, just, he might, there might be something else behind it, there might be actual evidence to back this up, and he might not just have come, come up with this concept just randomly in his head, um, so I did give him a chance, and it turns out, well, I found out about you, Tom Campbell, and I found about, I found out about the double slit experiment, the double racial experiment, and other experience, experiments similar to that. And I think just the, the mere possibility that this place is a virtual reality, that it's an illusion, just intrigued me so much that I wanted to look into it more. And um, after a couple of years, here I am now talking to you, Tom Campbell, and it's just such a great opportunity for me. Um, so you can answer some of my questions and we can yeah. talk. And it's just it well, Michael, I, I'm sorry. I didn't want to interrupt you. Oh, no. No, it's fine. Well, Michael, what, how did you end up here sitting in this chair with your headphones on talking to me? Uh, your dad introduced it to you? Uh, yeah, my dad introduced it to me. Um, We were just having a normal day, and then dad's like, oh, there's this man called Tom Campbell, you should um, you should study it. So I did exactly that. And then because of that, I'm here sitting in this chair talking to you guys. <laughs> That's good. So thank you, guys. I, I really enjoy this. We'll have to do it again. Maybe next time the others will show up. But uh, if not, we had a good time, had good questions, and uh, 
everything worked great. Thank you very much. Well, Oliver, I think it was a, I think it was a really good, uh, a good present, you know, a good uh, uh, video that we've created here. Looking forward to it getting out on the, on the uh, YouTube. Thank yeah. you, Oliver, for bringing all this about. It's a really good idea. Yeah, sure. I also enjoyed it, and uh, great that uh, Kyle saved the day with all of his questions, which he came up, <laughs> which he pulled, pulled out of the head, unplanned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just came up with a bunch of random questions, and as you were speaking, I just more and more questions popped into my head, and then, well, uh, it ended up being the full two hours. I was at first, I was sort of gutted because I was like, oh, you know, we're not going to go for the full two hours, but then just out of nowhere bunches of questions just came into my head and I and what well, turns out we managed to go on for the full two hours which which for me is really great. <laughs>